they forgot to go back and sew up the episiotomy that they had prepped me for, anticipating her coming out, you know, the natural way. That is the beginning of my nightmare because when they didn't sew it back up, it started to fall. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. Implanting plastic mesh inside our bodies doesn't sound like a smart thing, and it wouldn't have happened to Michelle Hedgecoff if a previous medical error hadn't damaged her body. Michelle was a healthy and happy career woman when she gave birth, but the doctor, who had given Michelle an episiotomy, failed to sew her back up after the baby was delivered. This failure would have devastating consequences on every aspect of Michelle's life. In an effort to fix their mistake, doctors performed a surgery to implant plastic mesh into Michelle's abdomen, plastic mesh that can disintegrate, releasing toxic and sickening poisons, plastic mesh that can twist, break apart, and pierce internal organs, plastic mesh that can attach itself to organs so they can never be detached. In this interview, Michelle tells us what happened to her in the healthcare system the impact it has had on her body, her health, her family, her career, and what she is doing today to make others aware of the dangers of mesh implants. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of a counselor experienced with medical error and or living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Michelle and a word of warning as always that some folks may be triggered by Michelle's experiences with the healthcare system. Awesome, thanks Michelle. Uh, so, where did you grow up, and what was your childhood like? I grew up 
between two towns, um, Jackson, California, which is about 45 minutes north in the Sierra Mountains, and in Manteca, which is about 15 minutes south of where I'm at now, um, my parents divorced when I was small. So I I was on the, the every other weekend with the with my dad and growing up in a small town and then in a city, it it it, it was hard. <laughs> it really was. But I spent most of my time in the mountains in Jackson. It was, it really was, because there were a lot of times I wanted to be with my father. And because of the court order, I couldn't. My dad had to take me back. And living in the mountains, there's not as much exciting things going on up there like there is down here in the valley. Yeah, it was rough, but I'm even to this day, I'm still close to both my mom and dad. Mm. So where did your life take you when you turned into an adult? Um, I went to Heald College School of Business. I wanted to, ironically, be in the medical field. So I achieved an associate in applied science degree in medical office administration. So I, I had that going. When I graduated, I ended up going and working in a call center doing customer service, which is nothing to do with what I went to school for. But that ended up giving me a very long career um, in the field, you know, and just on the phones, talking to customers, doing collections. So I just utilize my degree where I can within that. And uh, I, I ended up having an amazing career because of it. Okay. So you, you say, ironically, you went through education in the medical field. So tell us why that's ironic. Because I thought I was going to go work for a doctor afterwards and working in a call center. I found it to be a lot more exciting. I like to be on the move when you're trying to get uh, quotas every month and you've got contests. I mean, the company was really great. You could win gift cards, things like that, you know, and it just kept me wanting to go back and work more for that company. Oh, okay. And so we're here today to talk about how your life intersected with the healthcare system. So take us on that journey. When did it start? Um, I want to say 2007 to 2008, I had gone into the doctor for my monthly or my annual uh, checked out, you know, for being a girl. <laughs> and uh, they discovered, my doctor discovered that during that examination, that part of my colon was falling down onto my vaginal wall. And they suggested you know, I need to see a specialist immediately. I need to have a, a surgery to fix it. And the only option that was given to me by the urogynecologist was medical mesh. Put it in, it'll lift it right back up where it belongs. You'll be rejuvenated. Everything will be great. Uh, we all know today that that's not how it worked. <laughs> but in 2009, I had the surgery. Okay. And so when you're going in for this yearly routine checkup, did you have any symptoms? Um, just constipation. I was, it was really hard to pass a stool. Okay. So this explained why you were having a constipation. Yeah. And then also I had an episiotomy when I uh, had my daughter. 
I ended up having a C-section, but they went in and prepped me for vaginal delivery. I had already had two sons and they were nine pounds, three ounces and nine pounds, 10 ounces. So my body, th those are big babies. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I, um, I had my daughter and my, I, I was told that I was not meant to be able to deliver children. So I'm very blessed, um, but my daughter got stuck. And when that happened, they had to go in and do emergency C-section. They forgot to go back and sew up the episiotomy that they had prepped me for, anticipating her coming out, you know, the natural way. And that is the beginning of my nightmare because when they didn't sew it back up, it started to fall. There was like nothing, you know, constructive holding it where it needed to be. Wow. So I wasn't expecting that the reason you needed the mesh implant was because of a medical error originally. So it's just medical error compounded by another medical error. So, so you say yeah. you had the surgery in 2009. How did the surgery go? It actually was very painful for about nine weeks um it was you know trying to pass a stool after you've had surgery in that area is is torture and so I was in a lot of pain and then after about eight weeks or so it subsided and everything seemed fine and it wasn't for a year and a half that they discovered that I had stitches inside the vaginal wall that was never dissolved they put permanent stitch there instead of the dissolving stitch. So there's like multiple errors going on here. So when they went in to remove the stitches, if you can imagine, the mesh started pushing through the vaginal wall and they called that vaginal erosion, mesh erosion. So it was eroding into my vaginal wall. And for about 11 months, I was going in and my doctor was taking out pieces through the vaginal wall in a doctor's office setting with no pain medicine at all. And then a couple of days off work. And I, I know that you probably are familiar with the work industry. You can't dismiss a lot of time and expect to keep your job. And I'd been with the company for over eight years. So I had lenience with FMLA you know, the Family Medical Leave Act here in California. So I was able to use sick time, vacation time, and FMLA time that's given. So I'd been with the company for so long when this all started. It was, it felt like I was being tortured, getting the pieces pulled out little by little over 11 months. And then, um, something really strange happened you know uh, when you're working you don't know how the medical insurance the benefits that you get you don't really know what you have until you have to use it and uh they had decided the company to get rid of blue cross blue shield hmo which is what i had which means i had to go to kaiser hmo a perfect world that wouldn't have been a big deal but when i had a surgeon and I'm going through all these complications. Now I lost my doctor. I lost my pharmacy. I lost, you know, 
everything I had with Blue Cross Blue Shield and I'm, I go to Kaiser. One month with Kaiser, I was in the doctor immediately. I need somebody to look, something was wrong. And the, he kept putting a sealant over the hole in the vaginal wall. Well, it keeps ripping open, just naturally moving, kept reopening. And so when they went in and did the checkup, they said, you are all opened up in here. Did you know that? And I said, yeah, I've been doing this for almost a year now. And so they immediately got me booked for surgery. Three months it took. We only had one urogynecologist through Kaiser and it happened to be here in Stockton where I live. So I got really lucky there. He went in and removed some of the mesh. He couldn't get it all. He said he would have done more damage to me than good by trying to get it all out. So it already started breaking apart. Wow. And since then, sorry. So just so I can sort of get what's going on here with your body. So the mesh, which was surgically implanted as one piece, disintegrated, broke apart, pierced your vaginal. Part of it wall. did, yeah. Part of it did, mm -hmm. and the so the doctors taking out pieces over the course of a year, and then you had the surgery where it took out more pieces, but says I could do more damage if I try to take out some more. Yep. Oh, it's not over yet. This is just the beginning. <laughs> okay, uh, just digesting that part. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. I, it's a lot. I, I mean, uh, during this time, and I do want to stress in the interview, if I could, about mental illness and how important it is to take care of yourself because while I'm going through this, I'm losing time at work. I was demoted to the lowest level of a, because I went from customer service to collections. So at this point, I'd worked my way up. I had a clearance for the United States Treasury contracted where I was able to collect on the big, big giant good accounts. The good accounts that get you paid good money. I'd made it. I worked almost tirelessly to move myself up in the company so I can give my family a comfortable life. And I feel like Mesh took that from me because the moment I made it to treasury, which it took six years to make it to treasury, you got to work really hard and be a collector that's constant. You're not just hitting your numbers, you're going above them. That was me. And I worked really, really hard and to get demoted immediately because of my medical condition, it, that was, was the beginning of the depression. They were trying to fire me and I was smart. I filed FMLA paperwork with human resources to make sure that my, I was protected thinking I can go in, figure out what's going on. They could fix me. I can go back to work. Everything will be great. Nope. So I got demoted and it got to a point where I just couldn't handle the stress at work and the stress of trying to take care of myself at home. So I went to Kaiser, but the urogynecologist is up in Sacramento. He um, had suggested pelvic Botox. And to this day, I have not found one single mesh patient that has had pelvic Botox before. And what, what that was is uh, they took 20 needles full of the Botox and injected it into my abdominal wall all at the same time. So almost like a sewing machine. 
you know, that really fast. 48 hours after the surgery, the very next day, I felt amazing. I thought, oh my gosh, okay, the pain is subsiding. This is a good thing. I can go back to work. I was almost out of FMLA at this point. And 48 hours after that, I was in horrific on the floor in a, in a baby position and screaming in pain. Finding out a year after all of that and going to the hospital, trying to get pain control, I got, you know, looked at as a drug seeker, an opioid seeker, because you can't see my injury on the outside. And you can see it in my eyes if you see me every day. Um, but it's internal. So it's easy to look at somebody and say, I don't see it. So guess what? I think you're full of it, which is what a lot of medical professionals within the, the communities. I had a really hard time with uh, the county here. When I first lost my job, it, and this is where it gets really bad. You lose your job, you lose your benefit for insurance at all you know all of it it's gone I had uh, paid for long-term disability something told me I needed to make sure I had it and so I filed my documents with Prudential Insurance and during this time I'm losing my job I'm losing you know my independent life it it, it all started to fall apart and I, it took me to a really dark place. And that's why mental illness and mental, you know, health needs to be stressed to most patients because you're going through all these things. It's a domino effect. The minute you lose that part of your life, it dominoes all the way down because then you have to fight for how, how are you going to pay your bills? How are you going to pay to go to the doctor? After having pelvic Botox, I was in bed constantly. I still am a lot of the time. And the pain in the abdominal area, the colon, um, you, I feel pain in, when I, in my bladder as well. So the mesh, it's like a, an arrowed anchor. When I had my MRI done a couple months ago, you could see the arrow like this in the actual ultrasound, which is finally on black and white paper, it says that is a medical mesh that she's talking about. And then we've got problems with the pair. I can never say this word, paradule. Um, it's, it's an actual nerve in, in your low back, like where your tailbone is. It, it affects everything now. It's like everything when I wake up in my arms, my legs, my body, everything hurts ever since I had the pelvic Botox it made it I just wanted the general pain to stop and this amplified it by a thousand and so then you get into pain medication and before they started you know saying hey you know these opioids can cause severe constipation which is what it was doing and we didn't know it at the time I would just eat like normal and then be hovered over in pain and I'm going to the hospital nobody could figure it out. And I finally just sat down one day and did a lot of research. And I'm constantly making sure that I'm on top of what's going on because I know other countries right now are having problems getting medical care for this. 
And that's what I aim to achieve is to help them. It was, it started here in the United States. I feel like we, we have a duty to make sure everybody's taken care of in a way that helps them with their mental state, because this really does a doozy on your mental state. There's, it can take you to suicide and you're in a lot of pain. We've had mesh patients commit suicide already. Yeah, that's a, a really important point that it's doesn't and the medical injury doesn't end at your physical body. It mm -hmm. impacts your mental health, social health, economic health. I mean, yep. and the, the last thing a person who's been injured and is sick and disabled, the last thing they need is more stress added on about employment and finances and healthcare coverage. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so I went to the county and I got all that, but it took a long time. And then they put on my file that I was high risk because I'm on opioids, right? So automatically I'm a drug user. No, I have serious complications and I'm in pain, but I know how to regulate it now. And I know that you, you got to come in with like a lot of fiber and you have to adjust your, your diet because what you eat can affect, you know, the pain levels that you experience on the other side. I've been working on my blog. I'm trying to change the layout. It, it's got a lot of fun options. So I'm going to be starting a series this summer for uh, recipes and, and things like that, you know, that might be able to help mesh patients figure out how not to induce, you know, the opioid in causing you pain. So I, I had to lower the amount of, of uh, Norco that they had me on because I was taking... 10, 325s, four times a day, along with gabapentin, ibuprofen, and cyclozapine, which is a muscle relaxer. And another reason why my husband and I got really strict about this, and we wanted to make sure all the doctors were talking to each other, is because we're starting to see people die, and it's not intentional, and they die because now I'm having an allergic reaction to something an antibiotic. I've, I've been through three or four severe allergic reactions, which cause hives all over my body. And so, I had to go to the hospital. So is that because the mesh is breaking down, releasing chemicals into your body and your body's having reacting to them and then reacts to yep. other stuff too? Exactly. So it's layered. It's hard for people to follow because we're dealing with so many different medications and then you don't want to get stereotypes. So I had to do a complaint. I got it all straightened out. They know that I'm not an opioid. <laughs> no. If it were up to me, I wouldn't take them at all. Because I feel like if you do it over a long period of time, it's going to sooner or later start to affect your other organs, you know, the opioid medicine. So I think that's like a major reason why that they um, are coming down on opioids so much is because it can lead to death. But when you have a mesh device inside you that's you know made of polypropylene plastic and it's in um, a body and it's foreign, it doesn't belong there. My body was kicking it out. It, it does not. So it has nowhere else to go now. It's stuck there. And then I end up just suffering a lot of pain but I've got the opioid stuff under control now. 
it took a lot of a lot of time to do trial and error to figure out what was really causing that the opioids you've got to be very careful not just because you know they can relieve pain but because you take that and then you've got your other medicine you're taking right and then all of a sudden you have an allergic reaction and now i have to take benadryl and then you just start layering it it can become a, a combination of cardiac arrest and you're done. So it's almost like if you don't, you're not in a good spot. And if you do, you're still not in a good spot. So I'm just following a, a lighter version of what they had me on. So I don't do the Norco four times a day. If I'm lucky, maybe twice if it's a bad day. And then I just try to do anything I can to distract because the pain never stops. And that that's what makes it really hard. Constant, unrelenting pain. Mm -hmm. Like I got, I got a blanket on me right now, a heating blanket and I'm covered with pillows behind me. And it, it's like, if you sit down, I have to have it. I have to have it really soft and comfortable. I can't sit down on a hard surface anymore. Yeah. So uh, in this journey, it, it, it really sounds like you went from, you know, being only a victim, a mesh victim, into an advocate and increasing awareness and connecting people. How did yes. that, how did that happen? Oh, this is such a sweet story. I love telling this story. And I'm not sure if you have interviewed other mesh patients like me, but, um, Anybody that you get is going to tell you that Chris, Christina from, and I will completely mispronounce her last name, but her name is Christina. I think Barajak, I'm, I'm probably getting that wrong. She was the very first mesh patient to pass away from mesh. And when I first started talking to her, she was online doing live streams, talking about symptoms. She was the very first person to speak out. And I feel like she's like our mesh pioneer. And I talked to her about what had been going on. And she's like, you know what, you should do a blog. You should, you need to tell your story. It's important. And so I thought about it, talked to my husband, because we knew at some point, you know, this could go to a larger audience. I want to make sure that I'm not bringing a a spotlight to my family, you know, and um, making sure that the reasons why I do it is for the patients. A lot of patients feel like they don't have any way out and they just need somebody to help them depending on their circumstances. And there's a lot of us that are doing it. You know? But when we lost Chrissy, the world felt it. And every year on her anniversary, I, we light a candle, say prayers for her, and God bless her for giving all of us a voice and showing us that by doing this, I mean, we we created a lot in our movement, transvaginal meshes, at least from the way I'm understanding it, have been 100% banned in every country around the world, which is amazing. And it took all of us you know, just trying to let the FDA know, hey, this is dangerous and it's killing people. 
maybe not directly from the mesh like Chrisine, but we've had a couple of mesh patients kill themselves because of this. They're in so much and, pain. Yeah, it's so hard to talk about because I'm a patient too. There, there's patients that I, I listen to their, their videos or what they're posting. I cry all the time because I understand what they're going through. And I want to say it was not this last year because COVID-19 came in and just completely made everything a debacle, right? <laughs> everything we were doing just went stop. But um, the year before that, uh, when I did the International Mesh Awareness Day videos, uh, I met somebody in South Africa. One lady in South Africa. And it was really neat to be able to connect like that. And just let them know, hey, you know what? We have tons of resources here. What can we do to help this person? Try to get them some help, even if it's emotional, because we get a lot of that too. You know, they're venting online. They don't know what to do. Their husband or their kid, you know, something. And we, we all have the same thing, you know, families that are impacted by it. And we just try to give them support. And if it's something that we can go a little further with, like direct names of doctors within their country, it's something that I'm working on personally, because I want to be able to get the help to everybody, regardless of where they live. And that's part of the big problem right now, is trying to get them help. And of course, money, we're all hurting. Pandemic really changed a lot of things for, for a lot of us that are, you know, just trying to survive, but um, just to have somebody to talk to, because for the longest time, I felt like I was all by myself. Yeah. Chrissy changed that. Yeah, it sounds like she had a huge impact, not just on you, but on your whole community. And it sounds like your whole community is really supportive of each other. And mm -hmm. I, I sort of hear there's two things going on. There's one, the practical stuff, you know, how can I have a better quality of life and who are potential doctors and healthcare workers that might help me? And this other component of the emotional component of the trauma, not only the trauma of sort of betrayal of the system and, and the surgery, but then the larger trauma of a system that's not really going to support you very well at all. Exactly. I mean, I had this lady at uh, the county hospital here in my county, San Joaquin County, and I was in there trying to get my uh, pain medication refilled. And this is like when the when it was really, I was having a lot of pain, but we didn't figure out it was, you know, opioid induced constipation at the time, which they offered me a pill for that. And I said, forget it. I'm just going to lower my pain meds and do it that way. You add too many pills on, you're just adding more, you're checking off more days off of your life. So I'm working on uh, different things that might be able to help patients, you know, not just here. I know that insurance companies will offer, you know, um, I hate using the word handicap, but if you're disabled and um, you have challenges, like when the lockdown first happened last year, we all know what the lines were like trying to get toilet paper. So I was able to get a walker with the seat on it and it was completely paid for by Medicare, 100%. Now I'm, I'm on permanent disability for the rest of my life. It's never changed, but 
but I had to fight for that too. It took three years. And before I could even file for that, I had to utilize everything else. So I had to, all my FMLA from work, that was gone. And I'm not with the company. And then Prudential somehow mismanaged my paperwork with, with Kaiser and with the county. And so they stopped my benefit. I was getting $1,200 a month and they stopped it. And I didn't realize that you only get, you know, six months seems like a really long time. But when you're dealing with as much stress as I was dealing with at the time, checking out was a lot easier. Just go to bed, put a blanket, put a television on. And I, I went through a period of feeling sorry for myself. I still do. You know, I hate being a burden to my family. And I can't go out and do the things that I used to be able to do. Like I can't go to uh, go ride like a lot of rides at Disneyland now. I'll be lucky to be in Fantasyland, but you know, all the hard rides, I can't do it anymore. It takes everything away from you. It really does. Emotionally, it's, it's the worst. I, I'm lucky to have my mesh community. They, they are completely amazing. Everybody. But I did want to mention, if you go to my West Coast Mesh Fighter Facebook page on there, I have some of the leaders around the world. Like we have Candia. She's in the United Kingdom. And I interviewed her. She's amazing, isn't she? Yeah. <laughs> I love her to death. She's amazing. And so for folks... Uh... Tell them again the name of your website. It's called West Coast Mesh Fighter. My family came up with the name for me because um, I live in the West Coast. It's all together one word, and I'm on all platforms for social media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I have my blog, and I also do vlogs with the letter V um, and on my YouTube channel. There, it, the name of my YouTube channel is called Impromptu Thoughts because when I do them, it's usually I got an idea. I got to sit down and do it right then and there. I'm going to forget. Mm-hmm. And so it's very impromptu. And I really love that class in college. So <laughs> it, it came after that. And then my blog, I named it Afterthoughts because I'm thinking back. And then I'm trying to remember important points so I can bring them to the surface and talk about them. 10 years is a long time to battle with this. And I'm still fighting. And I don't want anybody to feel like they're by themselves because that's mainly what caused a lot of the mental anguish is my family didn't understand. I didn't even understand. And so you, you get into a mental state where you're all by yourself. It's easy to feel alone. That's what mesh does. It's like cancer. I have to say that Candia played a big role in helping me save my life too. Because I know I don't know if you've um, interviewed Katrina. She is the head of Mesh Victims United. It's been a little while since I've checked in with her. So I plan on doing that. She would be amazing to talk to and share her story. She runs, I, I believe, the only nonprofit we have in the United States for MESH, which is MESH Victims United. 
I, I remember we did um, a meeting like this and it was a Zoom meeting and they were in Florida because Kendi had come in for a meeting. They were in Florida and I was here and then we're, it was like we were all together on the screen. It was really a neat meeting, just laughing and, and trying to find some happiness in this nightmare that we have to live with. Yeah, yeah, you guys are excellent mutual supports for each other and for the community. And so all of those uh, links and social media stuff, um, I'll list those in the show notes so people can find you that way too. Awesome, thank you. And so this has been, a, you know, a horrible journey that no one would ask for, yet in spite of that, it really sounds like you're making meaning out of this experience. I am. I am because I know that my kids, they, they are such a stronghold for me. They need to see that you know, there is some happiness, even if you're dealing with difficult things. And it's rough. I have a lot of bad days. <laughs> I do. But I, I don't know what I do without my kids, my husband, my family, and our animals. <laughs> but I mean, if a patient can get an emotional support animal, just having that alone, the people that feel like they're all by themselves, they're the ones that we need to help. It, it's not an easy thing to get your mind right. It took me four and a half years in, in therapy. I went, went and saw a, a family therapist because I needed help on how do I put this together where I can be supportive for my family and not so much a burden emotionally it's easy to check out there's so much on the internet these days <laughs> it's easy to just check out and not do it you know but i had to pull myself out of that yeah. and it'll it'll never completely go away but i can't let it fully run my day in and my day out because i'm missing out on life yeah, you're forced to go through a, a monumental shift in your life and the goals that you had uh, and you went through a process that helped you get going in that direction and a better quality of life so thank you michelle for sharing your journey and for the work you're doing for the community it sounds so important for other folks to be able to find that they're they're not alone in this and that there is some help and support out there so thanks for that very important meaningful work thank you so much well, a big thanks to Michelle for sharing her experiences with the healthcare system and for the work she's doing to increase awareness about the dangers of mesh implants. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of a counselor experienced with medical error and or living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.